Amen. You can have a seat. Kids, you are dismissed. Pastor Jeremiah is here to take you away for learning and fun and also treats. I don't know. What else do we got in kids' ministry? For the rest of you, my name is Dave. I am one of the pastors of this church family we call Cedar Mill Bible. And today we are in, listen to this, the final week of part one in our Moses series. Now, I say that because some of you have wondered, when will this series end? Some asked, was it over last week? It is not. Uh, Next week, we are going to be in part two. We're going to start part two of the Moses series for the entire series of Lent. This is two Moses series back to back, seven parts, six parts, 13 total parts of Moses' marvelousness. So that's what we're doing. Uh, There's a lot more to explore in the life of this wonderful man named Moses and the God he serves. So I want to go back though today and just kind of recap just to touch where we've been. Because way back at the beginning, God showed up to talk to Moses through a burning bush. Remember this moment, this is Exodus 3. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Friends, this is imagery in the scriptures for the good life, a place of well-being and prosperity, a place that's free of pain and suffering and turmoil. This is a land flowing with milk and honey, and it sounds so great. All the Israelite people have to do is leave Egypt, cruise across the little Sinai Peninsula, go north a few miles, and they will be there. This route is very short. To help you visualize it, I've got a map and I've labeled it Highway 26. This is the Highway 26 route to the Promised Land. Um, there's a little bit of traffic right there in the desert of Shur. That's where Intel is. But, um, but other than that, it's a very quick trip. And yet here's what God knows. This journey is not simply about where his people are going, but who they will be When they get there, Exodus chapter 13 says, When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. You see, God knows they are not yet who they need to be. He knows that a change in location, that a simple change in circumstances will not be enough. And so in verse 18, the New Living Translation tells us, God led them in a roundabout way. I love that language. God led them in a roundabout way. He doesn't take them on the direct route, not the shortest route. This is not a God of efficiency. He takes them on the roundabout way. Today, friends, we are going to ask a series of questions. The first one is, where does God take his people Where does the roundabout way of God in our lives often lead? Exodus chapter 16, it's where we'll spend our time today. We'll start right in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim 
and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Friends, this is a picture of the desert of Sin. This is an actual photo. This is what it looks like. This is what people in the ancient world would refer to as the wilderness. We think of wilderness as like forest and trees and shrubs. Not for them. This is the ancient Near East. This is the Middle East. This is the wilderness. This is where God is taking his people. This is where he's leading them on the roundabout way. And now you can see why there might be cause for concern. Because as they go, they don't have food. They don't have water. Their Nalgenes are running low. And they, they seem to be going in the wrong direction. Wait, God, I thought the promised land was north, and yet we seem to be headed south. And so the question they'll have to ask is this. Will they follow God when they don't understand? Will they follow God when following doesn't seem to make any sense? Will God's people trust him even on the roundabout way through the wilderness? You see, the wilderness in the scriptures becomes a metaphor for all those parts of life that are hard. For those times in life that are chaotic and dry, when when we're weary, places with none of the securities and pleasures and comforts and mechanisms that we're used to. That's the wilderness. Places with no reliable life support systems where, where old things that we used to trust in are now no longer available to us. That's the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where you feel like you're wandering, but God is teaching you a whole new way of being, relating, and living. Ever have a moment like that in your life? Ever been in that place? A situation where you wondered if God knew what he was doing? Ever had a, had a moment where all of a sudden you started to think, is God still leading here? Is he on the wheel? Or am I just by myself? Is God still with me? Because this is a road that I never wanted to travel on. This is a path that does not make any sense in my life. Verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Chipotle every day in Egypt, friends. Beef, chicken, pork, guacamole for only like $8 more. Anyway, it's another message. It was the best. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the chipotle we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Friends, here's our, here's our second question today. Why does God take us there? Why does God take his people into the wilderness? Why does he take us into the wilderness? It says in verse 4, In this way I will test them. He takes them there to test them. Now, to understand what's really being said here, the Hebrew word for test does not have the exact same connotations 
as our English word does. This Hebrew word is a little bit more nuanced. When we think of a test, we think primarily of evaluation. For us, a test is the chance to rate someone on a scale from like pass to fail. Like when you take your driver's test, remember that moment that creepy, quiet guy gets in the car with you with a notepad and then gives you like some very brief instructions and you start driving. And then every time you turn or signal or look or check your mirrors, he writes something down and it's totally stressing you out. Some of you are like 87 and you still remember that moment. You're sweating right now. You're like, I remember that guy. He smelled weird. I can't believe mom let him in the car with me. Like it was, yeah, super awkward. But but this is not what God is doing here. By the way, some of you are like driver's ed instructors and you're like, this is not all right. I'm so sorry. It's just a joke, kind of. Anyway, uh, this is not what God's doing here. In, in Hebrew, the word test is much more like train. It's about training. It's not about pass-fail. It's about helping the people learn something. This is what God is doing in the desert, in the wilderness. He's training his people. In chapter 15, we're also told that he's healing his people, that he takes them to the desert to heal them, that he is the God who heals. And so here's our next question. What does God want to do with us in the wilderness? If he takes us there to heal us and train us, what is he healing them from? And what is he training them for? Now, as I read this next section of scripture, I, I need your help because um, there's a certain word we need to notice and we're going to read it aloud together. It'll be underlined. You'll know what to do. Um, it's going to require some participation. So if you came today to sleep in church, this is my chance to wake you up. Here we go. Ready? So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your... While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Six times in seven verses, grumbling is mentioned. It is the, def the defining characteristic of the Israelite people at this point. After all they've been through, after everything they've, they've suffered and all they've been delivered from, all they've seen from God, their, their number one quality is that they are really good at grumbling. You know what grumbling is, right? I'll define it for you. A low-grade murmur of negativity a steady stream of cynicism. It's consistent complaining. It's an attitude and posture of dissatisfaction towards life. One pastor I heard this week said, it's 90% of Twitter, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> it's the feeling you get, friends, when you don't trust anyone anymore. When your, your trust in humanity and in this world has run out, when you don't trust your friends 
or your spouse or your church or your boss or your government or your media or your leaders? Do you think our nation is in a state of grumbling? Yeah, we live in a culture that not only grumbles, but that glorifies grumbling. We, we treat grumbling as entertainment. Some of you watch television shows or listen to podcasts that are primarily built around grumbling. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bible and you want to turn here, this is great. I'll put it on the screen too, but sometimes it's nice to just have the, the pages flip a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth He's using the wilderness experience. He's thinking back to the wilderness experience of the Israelites, and he's teaching the church about things that we need to be really careful of when we're following God in this world. He's saying, learn from their mistakes, church. Your parents, you ever say this to your kids? Learn from my mistakes. Don't make them for yourself, right? This is Paul. Here he goes. This is what he says. He says, now these things occurred. This is verse six. Now these things occurred. And he's talking about in the wilderness. In the wilderness as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Idolatry is worshiping other gods. It's not a good call. He's saying just try to avoid that in your life. Don't worship other gods. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Most of us in here would agree that sexual immorality can be a very destructive Sin, verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them, them did. In the Greek, the idea here is, is defying God, like willfully going against God and defying him, right? So here we have Paul saying, church, learn from the Israelites. Be really wary of idolatry, sexual immorality, and deliberately defying God. And I think we'd all say, yeah, those don't sound great. And then here's the last one. And he says, verse 10, do not grumble as some of them did. Don't be a grumbler. Idolatry, sexual morality, deliberately defying God, and grumbling, all on the same list. I bring this up because most of us in here don't think grumbling's a big deal. We don't understand how toxic and corrosive grumbling is to our souls. Furthermore, we're tempted to believe that our attitude whether grumbly or grateful, it is a function of our circumstances. Most of us in here think, well, I wouldn't grumble so much if life wasn't so hard. I'd be grateful. I'd be more, I'd be more filled with gratitude if only, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it is, right? If he would do, if she would start, if they wouldn't, if they would. But this is not what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures have a whole different perspective. The scriptures say things like Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, good situations, bad situations, hard situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard, listen, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will grumbling guard your heart and your mind from evil? It will not. Rejoicing will, thanksgiving will, prayer will. 
1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now I'll stop here and say that this isn't to say that there aren't moments to lament and mourn and weep and grieve in this world. There are. The scriptures talk about this extensively. It doesn't mean that as Christians we put on phony happiness. I hate phony, happy Christians. Please don't be a phony, happy Christian. It doesn't mean that we whitewash tragedy or injustice or oppression or pain. No, we acknowledge that. We lean into that at times. Even Jesus himself weeps at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, right? He models for us that it is okay to hurt and grieve. But here's what this does mean, friends. God longs for the usual, normal, and consistent tenor of our lives in good times and in tough times to be gratitude. Gratitude is the norm. Gratitude is the standard. Romans chapter 5, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Friends, you can rejoice even in suffering because suffering trains us not just to live for this world, but to become people whose hope and joy and excitement about what's to come resides in heaven. Things are looking really bad here, but I'm excited about heaven, right? It's like I'm having a crummy week, but I'm going to Disneyland next week. You can get through a really bad week when Disneyland's the week after, can't you? Now, some of you are like, no, I hate Disneyland. I don't really like Disneyland either. I'll come up with a better example. The Bahamas, right? Like the Bahamas, right? You can get through a really crummy week when there's something exciting on the horizon. Do you know what's on the horizon of your life, the scriptures say? Rejoice. 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles. Some of you are like, my troubles don't seem light or momentary. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. They do in light of eternity. See, even the worst suffering you will experience pales in comparison to the eternal glory that suffering is preparing you for. What does God want to do with us in the wilderness? Heal us from grumbling and train us for gratitude. How are you, how are you doing these days? How are you doing these days, church? Where's your grumbling quotient right now? Is is there a low-grade murmur of negativity or a steady stream of joy coming from your heart and mouth in life these days? Here's the second thing. The second thing God wants to do with us in the wilderness, he wants to heal us from self-reliance and train us for God-dependence. Here we go, verse 13. Follow the story. That evening, like Moses makes the promise, here's what's going to happen. That Evening, I like that because I want God to respond right away like this all the time. He doesn't, but he does in this case. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. So God tells his people, here's how this is going to work. In the morning, you're going to find these wafers all over the ground. Later in the chapter, we're told that they taste like honey, like honey wafers. Uh, And then he says, only gather as much as you need for one day and eat all of it. Don't save it because every morning I'm going to bring like new manna. Like don't eat the day old donuts. I got fresh donuts every day, right? And this sounds so simple. This sounds great. This is a great arrangement. This sounds wonderful. And yet it was very hard for the Israelites to do. Why? Why was this so hard for them to do? Why was... God's instruction is so difficult for them to follow. Here's why. For the past 430 years, the Israelites have experienced leaders who just used them and did not care for them. Oppressors who treated them harshly. And so what's been ingrained into their minds and hearts is, you can't count on people. You can't trust leaders. Kings and rulers are selfish and evil. And so you had better look out for number one. You had better create your own security. Friends, I'll argue that this is what the world eventually teaches us. This is what the world eventually teaches us. Some of you in here are young and you're thinking like, that's not my experience of the world. Oh, you just wait. You just wait. You live long enough and you will discover that worldly security is fleeting and that people will let you down. The stuff that when you're young, you feel like you can just count on, like it's a rock. If it's not God, if it's just stuff in this world, I promise, I promise there will be a day. And you're like, man, this is a really cynical message. You sound like you're grumbling, Pastor Dave. No, I'm just telling it like it is. People will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will let you down. Your parents will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your job will let you down. Your church will even let you down. If it hasn't happened yet, just keep coming. (laughs) However, however, in the wilderness, God is teaching his people, you must learn that I am different. That I'm not like Pharaoh. That that this situation will not be like Egypt, that I'm reliable. That even in, and listen to this, even in the worst situations, even when there's pain and suffering and trials that you do not understand, even then, I'm at work for your good. You see, God in this story is teaching the Israelites that he is dependable. But also what dependence on him looks like. What is it? mean? What does it take to depend on God? See, this whole manna thing was an amazing miracle, right? I mean, it's it's really phenomenal. Honey wafers on the ground every single morning. That's just, it's phenomenal. And it went on for a long time. We'll talk about that in a minute. But but Tim Keller actually asks a great question about it. I think this this is a fun question to ask. 
If, if God was going to do this miraculous of a thing, this phenomenal manna thing, then why didn't he just go all the way and put the manna right in their stomachs? I mean, I mean, couldn't, the, couldn't they have just like woken up in the morning and been like, oh man, I think it's time for coffee. I'm a little hungry. Oh, there it is. Thank you, Lord. Got it. Got it, Lord. There it is. Not hungry anymore. I mean, he could have done that, right? He could have just satisfied their hunger. He's God, but what does he do? He puts it on the ground for them to go out and gather every single day. Why? Because training isn't passive. It's active. Training is collaborative. It's cooperative. Training is not something God does to us. It's something God does with us. Friends, are there places in your life where you keep waiting for God to do something for you, but he wants to do something with you? You've been praying for a long time. Lord, do this thing. Do this thing in my life. Help me here. Help me there. And God's saying, I'm ready. I got the manna all like stockpiled and ready to go, but we're gonna do, we need to do this together. Where are you waiting for God to do something for you, but he wants to do something with you? Is there a place in your life where God is asking you, maybe even right now through the power of the Spirit, I'll do my part, but you've got to get up and gather. And I'll tell you what else is hard for us as modern American people when we look at this story, is that this story, even though the sermon will wrap up in a solid 35 minutes, maybe 40 if I start feeling it, we'll see. This moment doesn't wrap up in 30 to 45 minutes right? We like things to happen quickly. We like instant results. One day delivery, Amazon, thank you. 60 second abs. We're even impatient when we text someone and they don't text us immediately back. And that's right. I'm looking at my son right now. He's like, I want a response. I saw the little dots and then you went away. What is going on? That's what we like. But God says this. He says, Trust, faith, dependence, a sense of security that will be with you even in the most desolate, deserty, lonely, scary, painful places of life. It takes time. It takes time to really set in. At the end of this story, we're told, verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Friends, where in your life, listen, listen, where in your life are you asking God to hurry it up or speed it along, but he is actually doing a long, slow work in your soul? Now, some of you are like, that is not good news today, Pastor Dave. I get it. I I know. And yet, it's true. And, And here's our final question today. The last question we'll ask of this story, how? How do we apply this? How do we apply this manna story to our lives? Because I'm pretty sure there's not going to be like crackers in the, in, the, in the parking lot when you get out there. Unless Pastor Ted's doing what I asked. I'm, no, there's not going to be. Don't like go out there thinking that I planned something. I didn't. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen, in this passage, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is getting towards the end of his life. 
And he's looking back, as you often do at the end of your life, and he's looking back, he's reflecting on this time in the wilderness, and he's, he's looking, he's talking about this whole manna incident. And this is what he says about it, looking back on it to the people. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And then here's the reason. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To teach you that people don't just need bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see what Moses is saying here? This is the best point of the whole sermon. If you don't catch this, then the whole thing is kind of wasted. Moses is saying here, in the same way the manna sustained the Israelites in the desert, God's word is what sustains us for our journeys. He's saying to you and me, when your wilderness moment comes, when you find yourself in a place in life of confusion and hardship and loss and suffering or temptation or difficulty or depression, you need to be able to turn to God's word and you need to be able to use it as food for your soul. He's saying you must learn to, to turn the word of God into fuel and nourishment in your life if you want to make it through the wildernesses you will face. Moses is saying here, in the same way, in the same way God gave manna to the Israelites in the wilderness, he gives you and me as his followers, his word, his promises for our wildernesses. And so the question today is this, does God's word fuel your life? Listen, I, I'm not asking, I'm not asking if you believe God's word is true. It's not the question. I'm not asking if you've heard God's word. I'm not asking if you've read God's word. I'm asking this. Are you able to turn it into energy and encouragement and challenge and comfort in the midst of the hard things you will face in this world? Are you able to digest it? Is it part of you? Not out here, but in here. Are you able to gather it and rely on it in the wildernesses of your life? Friends, isn't this what Jesus does? Some of you are way ahead of me. You're already there. But some of you are like, you're just, you're right with me, which I appreciate you, right? This is what Jesus does. He goes into the desert, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. No accidental parallel here. He's fasting. He's not eating. So he's starving. And then what? Temptation comes to him. The tempter comes and says, just turn these rocks into bread and eat. Satisfy your hunger right now. What does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where have we heard that? See, Jesus is showing us here how to do, how to live out what Moses was teaching. He's, he's showing us here how to rely on God and how to depend on God's word and his presence and his promises in the midst of struggle. You see, for Jesus, God's word, his promises were not just something out here it wasn't just information that he knew in his mind. It wasn't just this part or this segment of his life. It was the very source of energy and strength in his life. That's what the word of God was for Jesus. Friends, this is why we say 
read your Bible. You're like, oh, I heard that forever. Read your Bible. Why? Not just so you can check religious activities off your list, but so that you can learn to digest the word of God into your soul. The challenge is go out and gather God's word every single day because training isn't passive. It's active. It's collaborative. And it takes time. It takes time to get in there. It's also why when we gather together, we, we eat this meal. We gather and we share the Lord's Supper as a way of saying this, Jesus, the good news that by your death and resurrection, you have made me your child. The good news that I am now forgiven. The good news that your death has defeated death for me. Those promises, that word, that truth, I don't want it to simply be something out here in my life. I want it to live inside of me. I need it to fuel me, to be my substance and strength as I walk through this world. See, that's why we break the bread and we take the juice. We say, God, yes, I need bread, I need food, I, but I need you in my life more. I need your truths to uphold me and sustain me for what's, what I'm facing now or what will come down the road. Friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, this meal is an opportunity for you to say, I need this God in my life. I want to be his child, his son, his daughter. I want to surrender my life to him. You come to this table, you take this bread, which represents his body broken for you, his death on the cross, his blood shed on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, so that your death could be de defeated, so you could have that eternal hope of life with God that he promises you. You can have that today with simply the declaration, Jesus, you are Lord. I am yours and you are mine. I receive you. Maybe you're here today and you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but you need to make that declaration again. I don't just want God out here. I need him in here. I need his promises and his truths in my soul to strengthen me and nourish me. That's what this meal is for today. And so if that's you, if you're a follower of Jesus or you want to become a follower of Jesus, these tables are open. The promises of God are here for you again this morning. I'm gonna pray and then the tables will be open. We have two kinds of communion this morning. There's traditional communion. And then there's pre-packaged communion. That's, we just want you to be comfortable. So take the one that's most comfortable to you. Take the elements, bring them back to your seat. We're gonna receive them together as a community in just a few minutes. We're gonna declare together as a community, God, we need you in our lives. And so when you're ready, go to the tables. I'm gonna pray first. And then the, again, they'll be open. Here we go. Father, today... Our whole worship service points to this meal that we'll share, this declaration that, of what you did and who you are and how we need you in our lives and that we need to receive you and again and again. May you be so real to us. May you, may, you, may you be so close to us that your promises and truths 
fuel who we are and strengthen us and empower us to be your people in this world. That is our prayer. It's our prayer as we come to the table to celebrate you and remember. And we pray it in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.